who is not an Amazon customer who just stopped? Like, if you've been living in a disused Blockbuster or Woolworths for the last decade, you'd like stumble into this thing like, oh, no way, a four-star shop. <laughs> what a great invention. <laughs> not five-star, but the four-star shop. That's almost good, but not great. That, let's go in here. And you're like... I'm familiar with the selection of SKUs from <laughs> such stores as Chibo. I have, <laughs> I have so many questions. Started during lockdown. In other news, things I'm not looking forward to, Amazon physical stores, which Jen pointed out to me yesterday. I was like, it's coming to the UK. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> this is an April Fool's. And then I found out they've actually, they've been around in the US for like three years. And I didn't realize. Mm. Do you mean the four star store? Yeah. The okay. four star it, sounds so tacky, doesn't it? It's coming to Blue Water in Dartford. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if you're ever down that way. Oh, it's just a tourist hotspot. Can't get enough of Blue Water, of Dartford, Kent, you know. So in the middle of the shopping centre, there is an, an Amazon four-star shop. It's a collection of all the stuff that has had at least four stars on Amazon that you might want to buy. And it's got a section for books. It's got a section for wish list, which is stuff that people add to their wish list that is also generally above four stars. And um, all the pricing is written out on digital signs. So oh, it, it updates in real time. Yep. And then if you go in, but you're not an Amazon customer, so you literally, I don't know who that is. <laughs> it, you've come in off the street and you are not an Amazon customer. You can still buy stuff. That's fine. It's, it's like a shop. But you can also, if you are an Amazon customer, you can use it as a pickup point. Who is not an Amazon customer who just don't... Like, if you've been living in a disused Blockbuster or Woolworths for the last decade, you'd, like, stumble into this thing like, oh, no way, a four-star shop. <laughs> what a great invention. <laughs> not five-star, but the four-star shop. That's almost good, but not great. That, let's go in here. And you're like... I'm familiar with the selection of SKUs from <laughs> such stores as Chibo. I have, <laughs> I have so many questions. So, firstly... Well, you know, Amazon do that dynamic pricing thing where they kind of tailor prices on a, a seemingly hourly basis, daily basis. It's I constantly think that's changing. what you think is happening. I think what's actually happening is you're on the marketplace and you're watching warring, warring pricing algorithms from different competing merchants on the marketplace. No, the no, no. Category. You can go to camelcamelcamel.com and you can just see the price history on Amazon and it's constantly changing. Um, but then I've always suspected that they also do personalized pricing for things that like you, you start to want something suddenly the price goes up and you're like oh hmm. and i just wonder whether that doesn't happen in the physical store mm. does it no they wouldn't be able to would they be weird be very weird but then the other thing i was wondering is because i mean on that topic have you noticed that if you search for an uber and then your partner searches <laughs> for an uber to the same destination yeah it's a different price yeah i know what that know what's going on there you see that's that's just demand pricing, so I kind of get it. Well, sometimes it's much um, cheaper. What, the second person's cheaper? Yeah, no, much cheaper. Really? Yep. Yeah, I can get bargains. Yeah, it's brilliant. So have you noticed that when you search on over the air... Do I mean over the air? No. When, I, when you search on <laughs> online travel agents, OTAs... Right. And <laughs> you... <laughs> Let's see what happened there. <laughs> what has happened in my brain? You know when you search on o OTAs... And you get different prices each time. And then if you search again yes. through an incognito, incognito window, yeah. you get another price. And that applies both to hotels and to flights. Yeah, and and the pricing algorithm for flights is incredibly complex for something like Ryanair, mm. where depending on how badly you want it, the price will change radically. I, th I think it responds to your mood. Yeah, and then sometimes you'll get this like online travel agent update pushed to you, and suddenly everything freezes because because uh, you just you're in the middle of booking a flight, and this OTA update comes through, and you're like, oh no, <laughs> this again? Not now. They need to, they need to roll back the <laughs> online travel agent. Okay, right. S silly dad jokes aside. Um, back to the Amazon. It's going to be really watched, hard to cut that back down. <laughs> I watched I watched a video of some guy in Texas go to one of these Amazon four star. 
it sounds weird, doesn't it? Four Star Store. It's like, mm, mm. it's just it's, it's a weird name. But I, I watched him go to it and it was the strangest thing because he, um, he goes in with his daughter and he's looking for this present for his grandma that he then wants to ship from the store to grandma, which they won't do because that would be stupid. But then he's got to walk out the store and then post. I was just thinking, does he not know it's a website? Does he not know he can get it shipped from the warehouse directly to grandma without any of this? I mean, it's the one time when showroom is socially acceptable, in fact, encouraged. You should stand in the store, <laughs> having put down the item you were just it. looking at, order it on the website of the store. Just order it. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how... Is this... You know what I think it might be? I think somewhere in the Jeff Bezos era of Amazon, because this is when it was launched in the US... He was thinking, how do I really rub it in the faces of all the brick and mortar stores that I've destroyed over the last few decades? I know. I'll just take the cheap real estate that's left from their abandoned stores and I'll just put just a tacky Amazon four-star store there and just watch their old customers come in, not needing to come in, to yeah, order. Look around, look order around bewildered. <laughs> this is in the shopping malls that haven't yet been turned into logistics hubs. <laughs> I was that what this is? This is slowly getting a footprint there to set in the back. <laughs> the back office of these is just them planning where where the warehouse bits will be, where the little robots will drive around. That's what this is. It's a front to make sure they've got some legal purpose to do all the all the rest of the mm. the just planning. A, f- a forward scouting organisation. Well, at least you solved that problem. Uh- <laughs> Are people taking classic cars and turning them into electric cars? So Jen sent, Jen sent me a lot of things this week, but this one was really funny because I was thinking about your Nissan Leaf, your 2014 Nissan Leaf. And then this came up and I was like, there's now a company in the UK called Oswald. And I think there's others around the world that are just doing these electric car conversion, not just for old cars, but like classic cars or you know cars that there's never going to be an electric edition for. And for £20,000, which is not cheap, admittedly, they will convert it to a lithium-ion battery, all the motors. They source these from like old crashed testers and leafs and everything that are no longer viable. And they, they basically get this car completely converted. Uh, and it made me think, this is a good idea. Because building a car has its own huge carbon footprint mm. and raw materials perspective. And there's just tons of cars that in the future are going to be somewhat obsolete because there'll be less petrol stations and there won't be the infrastructure for all of that. And if you, you're just going to be trashed, aren't they? And some of them are perfectly good, maybe even desirable cars that people would Highly actually desirable. want. desirable. Classic cars. I mean, you see them rolled out at um, village fairs up and down <laughs> the country. Yes. But also just old cars driven on the road. <laughs> but you know, the Kia Enoa that I drive is, is in some ways a conversion of sorts because it, it does have a hybrid version, a petrol version. And they, they obviously professionally retrofitted it. It wasn't, it was like done by, by Kia to make it, you know, swap out the engine at the front, put in a battery, put in some electric motors, adjust the drivetrain, all of that stuff. But it won car of the year two years running, 2019 and 2020. So I don't think there's any problems doing this with other, a lot of other cars. It's feasible. Speaking of something that is a thing, but may not be actually that relevant, did you catch up on the Pandora papers leak? Uh, nope, but I noticed it was happening. Yeah, good. Okay, moving um, on. So um, <laughs> wealthy people are optimising for tax. Yeah, there was a it, million ways you could frame this headline, isn't there? Wh- um, sorry, wealthy people optimise finances to make them tax efficient in have accountants shock. Yeah, I think that's one way of, of, of putting it. I do like this kind of, this format of journalism, though, where you get three or four news organisations coming together, massive trove of data that's been released, and then slowly working through it. Because like with the... Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers. Yeah, but I was actually going to say, which had a more profound effect on, on British politics, the expenses scandal. It's the drip drip of bad news that over the course of time just gradually takes up so much airtime and news coverage and front pages that it changes the narrative. Uh, I think mm. that's I think that's really effective if you want to affect change like because normal stories about this or that tax avoidance by people in, in power with wealth they kind of they disappear without a trace on like page 11 or page 24 or something. Mm. And you know, it's never, it's not a thing. And what this is, is basically 
everybody in the 1% doesn't pay tax, but you have to. And the IRS has been defunded um, so that the only people paying tax are now the people for whom it's most burdensome. And it's, what is it? There's the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, who are the, the ones who dig into all of this together. It was the weird thing about this, so people who were unearthed as being, as you put it, tax efficient, or basically using legitimate systems to basically pay less tax. So Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth, I think Tony Blair was implicated in it. Well, the, the um, Blairs did something like this, right? They wanted to buy a London house of, or flat. Um, so what they did was they acquired the company that owned it. Now, if normally you'd have to pay stamp duty if you bought a house, but they bought a company, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that? we all what's, should what's do that. that? What's that? I mean, legally, Co- nothing, companies can own companies, can own companies of people as well, you know. Legally, somehow. King of Jordan has a $100 million property portfolio, which is, uh, I don't think he was so happy about being doxxed about that because he's been really cracking down on things in Jordan. Uh, and then to be unearthed as such a wealthy person, um, put, put it this way, it's... This news. Well, the statement that was issued was that that was all using. The statement issued um, by by his press people was that the entire portfolio was built up using his own funds. Yeah, yeah, it always has happened in Malaysia. I remember, um, <laughs> and, uh, without anyone knowing, President Kenyatta, thirty million. I feel like I have to speak wealth. up for these people here. Why um, have you, I've pos- positioned myself as the? Yeah, you're you're on that on that side. Um, right. The. Prime Minister of the Czech Republic has a $200 million mm-hmm. chateau in the south of France. Coincidentally, it's also, it was the election week <laughs> last week. Mm. Bad Check week. Mate. <laughs> uh, you know what's the weirdest thing about this that I still haven't quite got my head around is, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on. So the weirdest thing about this is there's a big trove of leaked documents saying all of this stuff called the Pandora's Papers. And it's, I think it was something absurd, right? It was... 13 million documents. It was an absurd amount of documents that they had to search through. Anyway, out of all of that, no US citizens implicated. It's as if, I don't know, I've heard some thoughts of if this was a CIA leak of documents or basically a US leak to discredit a lot of billionaires, but none of the US ones. It certainly seems like it might be, because I can't believe out of over 13 million documents that implicate pretty much everyone from the Queen of England through to like every major head of state, there's no US citizens. The country with the most billionaires in the world. None. I'm just like... That's weird, isn't it? Just, it's slightly unlikely. You're, you're right. It's very, very strange. I think it might be time for this week's Not A Sponsor. Ah. So this week, we have a really good Not A Sponsor. It is Bloom and Wild. You brought to my attention this crazy notion of flowers coming through the letterbox that then magically turn into actually nice flowers once they've been unsquashed, put in a vase and had water given to them. And Jen and I often talk about how, Jonathan, why are there no flowers? Why do you not get me flowers? We were working from home all the time. We're not in the office. We should have some flowers. And so I started subscribing to Bloom and Wild. You can have flowers posted through the letterbox either weekly, fortnightly or monthly. And at first you're like, oh, they sent me some dead flowers, but then you put them in some water, give them some flower food, and magically they turn into wonderful flowers. And so we thought we'd give them a go. And I've opted for the seasonal variety. So each time it gets sent through, there's a different selection, which kind of mirrors the seasons of what flowers are in season, but also what colours are kind of happening around. So this week there was all sorts of red and orange type flowers and roses and with variegated leaves, and it really felt autumnal. Is there some kind of discount code that people can use? There is indeed some sort of discount. So you can get £10 off. And if you click on the link in the show notes, you click on the link and you might be asked for a code, which is just my name. It's just Jonathan Space Tipper. And you'll get a discount on your next order. And it's great because I then also get a discount. So you'd be doing me a favour. You'd also have some lovely, beautiful flowers delivered through the letterbox to your house, which may look dead, but then you'll give them some water and some plant food and they'll look amazing. So that's Bloom and Wild. Bloom and Wild. Jonathan, thank you for this week's Not a Sponsor. No problem. And it's now time for This Week in Crypto. This Week in Crypto. Do you want to do a quick market update? So this week started with Bitcoin at 47,000, 47,500. And it's ended, or it's coming, it's drawing to a close with Bitcoin at 
$54,000, having peaked up to $56,000 earlier today. So overall, when it comes to crypto markets this week, number go up. Cool. Is there any other news happening in crypto? I should probably mention that the other markets are kind of recovering, having been a bit rocky, but all of the reasons to worry are still kind of in circulation, including more and more serious noises being made about inflation, the situation relating to incredibly spiky gas prices worsening, mm. and what else? Well, it's the debt ceiling still a ceiling. It's still a ceiling. Okay. And is China's property bubble and property developer bubble still ready to pop? And it's still unresolved. And um, I think a thing to note about the real estate and associated industries is that as a proportion of China's GDP, it makes up 20%, which is a lot. It's quite a lot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, good. So nothing's changed. Everything's still good. Don't panic. Remain indoors. <laughs> Um, can I ask you a little bit about regulation and regulation in the crypto space? Because I just hear these rumblings now, more and more, around the SEC starting to work out how it can basically become the regulator for crypto, and Treasury wants to be become a regulator of stable coins. So everyone's kind of gunning for crypto. I was wondering... What, what happened this week with the Bank of International Settlements and a declaration about... I think they've reached an understanding of how stablecoins ought to be regulated and then Ooh. issued a report relating to that. Tell me more. So the the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements report, basically said that there can be times when stablecoins become systemically important and therefore ought to be governed under the same types of framework as are already handling systemically important transactions and institutions within the financial system. I know stablecoins is an interesting one. I think the areas that are interesting from a regulation perspective is there's a lot more attention being paid towards DeFi because I, I just don't think regulators know how to deal with it, but they see a lot of noise in that space. And then there's obviously a lot of rumblings around stablecoins because China are just light years ahead in terms of just getting on and doing something in terms of central bank digital currencies. The US are stumbling around in the dark, but in a weird way, actually leading the pack from a stablecoin perspective. They have many, many US dollar backed stablecoins that correlate perfectly to the US dollar. Many of them actually fall into quite well-audited stances. We'll ignore the Tether side because Tether is just a mess. But a lot of the others are getting more and more above board in terms of showing one-to-one -one backing, evidencing the auditing side, being more transparent about, you know, what they're being backed by. I just I find it, at some point, I think regulators are probably looking at going, this is great, but we have no role here. <laughs> How do we play a role in this? Which is, I think, what's the next likely thing. Oh, okay. So but where I, from where I'm sitting, regulators ca can and absolutely must intervene in stablecoins and regulate them. And, and for the sake of confidence, and it would genuinely help the markets. And I think the, the Bank of International Settlements is right. I think it is probably a systemically important part of the financial infrastructure, the global financial infrastructure, which, if it's compromised, can introduce systemic risk. But there's a difference. So I no, I don't think anyone is like anti-regulation of stablecoins, because obviously that would resolve a lot of the issues that people have with things like USDT. But I think... There's a weird balance where I think some of that regulation is, or some of the want to regulate that is coming from a, I don't really like that these people have the ability to issue US dollar stable coins. And I think it should be the Fed doing that or us as the government doing it. And I think that's where there's a bit of a divide. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly lit a fire under central bank digital currency initiatives. Yeah. The fact that there are all now all these stable coins in circulation and it takes an important policy tool out of the hands of the government and it concentrates power in private entities, mm. but also does it in a really, in some cases, really poorly audited way. So even stable coins that we thought we could rely on, like USDC, to be one-to-one -one dollar backed, turn out to not in fact be one-to-one -one dollar backed. I mean, mm. they're introducing commercial papers and a variety of other kind of instruments and so no, it's true. 
Although I think uh, their roadmap, their plan is to be one-to-one dollar-backed. The question is why they can't do it right now. Who knows? That, I mean, that's we can all have they're... aspirations. Why did they not? <laughs> why did they not? Like... Stick to the original <laughs> intent, which they declared on their website and then then dialed back from, pedaled back from. Money? I'm going to guess money. Yeah. So they could they could print more money if they diverged from their original commitment. But you see, what would benefit the whole system is the confidence that would come from auditors going in and the regulatory approval of that whole thing. Mm. No, I can't deny that on the stablecoin front. I think on the DeFi front, it's going to be a lot harder to have that for the very reasons that it's, it is decentralized finance. The interesting one that I saw earlier this year was Gary Gensler kind of got caught in an interview. Basically, he had to acknowledge that he and the SEC have no plans to ban crypto. And he verbally said that. I think that's actually one of the things that's pushing so much of uh, its lift of fire into the markets again, because the fear of regulation in crypto, it used to be even, oh, they could ban all of it the way that China has. And now it's kind of looking very much like they will go after regulating stablecoins. They will almost certainly try and find ways of regulating DeFi, even though that's going to be a much harder battle. But they won't go after things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Layer 1, blockchains. And they certainly won't do what China have done. They've like, you know, categorically said they've got no intention to do that, which is quite interesting. That's a big relief for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it last week when Jerome Powell saying last week that he has no intention of banning cryptocurrency as US Federal Reserve mm. Chairman? Yeah. And I think it was, I think that was probably, if any of this market movement is correlated to anything in the real world. That was probably one of the things that drove a rally in Bitcoin's price. Yeah, because I guess on the... Yeah, so in, in order of events, actually, that's true. Jerome Powell said that, that the Fed has no intention to ban or limit the use of cryptocurrencies. And then in, following the context that, of, in the context of the China ban. In the Yeah. And then following that, in the context of China ban, Gary Gensler, SEC chairman, said almost the same thing. So maybe just following in suit. And all of that is leading to the other weird rumor that I just don't know how I feel about, which is people seeming to be getting very optimistic about a Bitcoin futures ETF. Right. So the backstory to this is that exchange traded fund, by which we mean a fund that allows large financial institutions, the big funds of this world, to get involved in speculating on the price of Bitcoin and investing in Bitcoin. Such a fund has not up till now been allowed in the US. It's been allowed in Canada, but it's not been allowed in the US. And uh, the Winklevoss twins kept trying to launch one. Many others have tried. What are the rumours on the ground? It's really unclear. There seems to be a lot of noise where people seem to think that a futures ETF for Bitcoin is going to get approved this year. I don't know which one. There's a big decision point, I think, happening end of October. And what's the significance of this? (sighs) Well, I don't know, because... For anyone who was around at the end of 2017, everyone was excited by the CME futures and the CBOE futures for Bitcoin. And it was like, oh my God, oh my God, that's going to be amazing. And crypto, Bitcoin in particular, ran up to close to 20k. Those futures got launched and that was basically the start of the end for a good three years for crypto. So I'm never that excited by a any terms that of institutional money coming into crypto in that form. I don't mind it when MicroStrategy buy Bitcoin at spot, put it in their corporate treasury, and it's kind of a store of value within corporate treasuries. Futures trading markets, that's not people doing that. That's speculating and hedge funds basically, you know, playing games to profit from the volatility of the market. So I'm never like as excited <laughs> by by this in the, in the short term. I think it's inevitable, though, and it will probably be quite healthy because you do end up legitimizing the entire space once you get an ETF. It's that we can't keep having MicroStrategy be the proxy for an ETF or the Grayscale Trust because it's it just it doesn't it isn't really right. Is this ETF going to be cash settled or physically settled? Because that's the other thing that bugs me. Can you explain the difference? So if something's cash settled, there's no actual Bitcoin moving at any point. It's just paper trading of just like that's tagged to, that just moves the Bitcoin price artificially. It's almost like a form of inflation because you basically have more Bitcoin getting traded than anyone's actually moving Bitcoin. Whereas if it's physically settled, like backed used to be, the Canadian 
Bitcoin ETF, I think, is physically settled. So at some point, when you, when you buy Bitcoin, Bitcoin is moving. Maybe not into your custodied wallet, but it's actually moving hands. And it does have a direct impact on chain. So I think there is a difference at a, at a kind of fundamentals level. But I'm not an expert on this. And it, it, it makes me nervous when we get into the kind of cash settled paper trading of Bitcoin as just a purely yeah. speculative asset because it kind Mm-mm. of dismantles the underlying power that bitcoin has so Mm. let's see but everyone's excited Mm. very good uh it could be time for this week in nfts and uh, i've got a question for you that's actually a bit of a sports question so do you need a steady grip to play basketball or can you play a great game of basketball even if you have paper hands (laughs) you know what you probably probably shoot better with paper hands than with diamond hands diamond hands is too too hard to get you know a good rotation on the ball um, you've sold most of your um top shot nfts i understand so top shot very short clips of basketball for no reason as an nft made with the blessing of the nba and uh, you've what is it you, you'd gone into this in a, in a way quite a big way but now you've divested what's going on i wouldn't say a big way in terms of top shots are that they're everybody collector so it's like sports card collecting but of digital clips so instead of buying a card of LeBron James you get a clip of him doing a layup or him passing for an assist or whatever it would be and there's loads of them um, and I started collecting them because it's still in beta and it's still early but it was it was kind of the nice consumer friendly version of NFTs you don't need OpenSea you don't need a MetaMask wallet you don't need to pay stupid Ethereum fees you know it's it's contained within an ecosystem where it just feels like a normal web experience which was great but i started collecting a lot of them queuing for hours to hopefully get one and then not doing all of the the fun shambolic things but then i feel like what they've done is they've diluted it so much they've just put clips of everything just everything to the point where it's now just a mess and so i've started listing them to sell them and i'm now i'm up however i don't feel comfortable in the space anymore because i think the problem with this whole space and the problem with all digital collectibles before NFTs was there's just too many of them. There's no scarcity. And then NFTs allowed you to have digital scarcity. And then they've gone and taken that to the point where there's now no longer any scarcity. And I'm like, okay, I think uh, I'll sell the one of the one of 40,000 clips of some guy that I've never heard of doing a layup for like $4 to someone else who's probably only buying it for the games that they kind of build up, they gamify the system so that you have to have these like collections or challenges to get this thing so you can get this drop. And it's like, that's how they're having to market it to maintain the illusion of collection. And the thing I don't like about that is like all the money has to be traded on the NBA marketplace. It's not open. And then Mm. the cut that Dapper Labs and NBA take for every transaction is 5%. And then the cut to deposit your money on there is like another five percent and then the cut to withdraw is also a few percent so they're taking cuts at every point of it and i just don't feel like it's as like you could say a lot of N- nft stuff at the moment is a small ponzi this is like its own little ponzi but it's not as exciting because i don't feel like i'm collecting the best clips i'm just collecting just random dross and so i'm kind of out i hear you okay um <laughs> Why are you laughing so much? I've got no way of introducing this next topic. Is it about London becoming a crypto art capital? I just think this is an article that you now, if you work for any newspaper, there's certain keywords that you need to hit. And if you can write an article that that gets those keywords, they give you a pat on the back or maybe even some kind of internal... It's the FT, Doug. Yeah, I think maybe there's some book tokens in it for you. <laughs> maybe Amazon gift cards. I don't know what you get. But I think you get something. So like this week, you managed to write an article that contained somehow a boosterism article about London being the centre of the world for X, in which X was crypto art. So it includes the word blockchain, huge win. Includes the word NFTs, double bonus. And uh, Bonanza, It's it's all gone well, hasn't it? <laughs> Should we put a link in the show notes? (laughs) So uh, this article, which is in the Financial Times, claims that London became a crypto art capital because 
Uh, although it's all on the blockchain, even though this world is digital, geography does still matter. And London has become a kind of nexus because of the expertise in think tanks and galleries and blockchain expertise and money and talent. Well done, London. So what's quite interesting about this one is, yes, it's kind of like keyword bingo for the FT, which is typical. But I didn't realise that in the in like the mainstream auction houses, you know, we talked about Christie's the other day. The order that it goes in is like the cheapest stuff starts off in Hong Kong and then the higher end stuff moves to Paris and then it moves to London. And then for the real premium, big ticket, end of the year, mass volume auctions, it's New York. And it's kind of, there is a geographic nexus for all of these things. And it's seen as being like, okay, Hong Kong is like, yeah, more risky, like more edgy lower price things and then it moves its way slowly west towards new york for the let's gather all the highest value things get all the top patrons in on those auctions so i think they kind of missed that point with this article but it's also it is interesting that you are seeing stuff pop up so there's this exhibition going on at the moment in london where they've got an exhibition with me bits punks apes a little collection not like an auction house thing but where you can go and it's like an actual gallery experience for nfts which you know i think you're not going to see at that many major cities. So maybe there is something to it. Hmm. What are CDBs? Have you heard of crypto dick butts? Ah, uh, yes. I'm familiar with the crypto dick butts. Yes. Good. Can you explain what they are? Because I don't... So the crypto dick butt, you know what a dick butt is normally? Uh, no. You know what a dick butt looks like? It's a kind of bottom with... Um, and it's got wings. And no, it's like a sort of sketch drawing. It's very popular through the internet, very mimetic. Anyway, the crypto dick butts are 10,000 dick butts with a variety of rarities and, and characteristics and traits. And you can buy them on the blockchain and you can collect them and they've done really well. It brings me to the the point that I think I've got to, which is that... Which is sour grapes. <laughs> yeah, which is sour grapes. I think I don't... <laughs> you know what's really weird? There's like the, the stages that you go through in this whole space where you're like, you start off looking at it going, they're all trading JPEGs. This is clearly ridiculous. How absurd. It's nonsense. Then you get involved in some capacity and you go, no, no, no. There's some semblance of reason because of like art and culture and the combination of like technology meets art meets culture meets community. And there is weird value that's placed on these things as cultural symbols. And then you get further into it and you go, Oh, but crypto dick butts, this is nonsense. This is the point where I draw the line. And I feel like I'm at that weird bit where like hated from both sides, the people who are loving crypto dick butts are like, no, this is, look at this great thing. And at the other end, there's people going, why are they even bothering? This is clearly a Ponzi. And I'm stuck in the middle thinking, mm. uh, don't know which camp I'm in anymore. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, I originally had this thought in the context of me bits where I thought, you know, like much like the seven stages of grief, that there is a kind of seven stages of, of me bits or seven stages of <laughs> NFTs. So in the first one, you think, oh, that's just stupid, isn't it? It's obviously stupid. And I, I went through this with me bits. This is just people, why would they do that? They're paying lots of money for a JPEG. Then there's intrigue, where you, you look at it and you, you begin to see that there's different types of me bit. And they have different rarities of traits. And there's kind of something there. And then there's a kind of jealousy FOMO stage where you realize that other people have them and you don't have them. And you're wondering <laughs> if maybe you should have one. And then usually after you get one, then there's another stage where you just go really deep. You go way too deep on like really understanding like, oh, maybe if they have a full suit, they should be more valuable. And that's interesting. <laughs> I, I like ones where they have hair in their bun because then they've got, uh, if they've got it with purple dye, then you've got lots of coloured stripes down the side. And you get into that, then you go deep. And then it sounds like you're describing a kind of stage six, which is absolute disgust. And then uh, <laughs> and disillusionment with the space. And hopefully you can get through to stage seven, apathy. Okay. That's good to know. I'm looking forward to apathy around crypto dick butts and mutant apes would still make me feel a bit nauseous just looking at them um, mm -hmm. they're just not very attractive says the man who bought some trolls <laughs> moving on there's a question here can nfts save photography 
Oh, yeah, this was interesting. I was listening to that podcast that I sent to you, which was an interview with the guy at Christie's. He used to be responsible for digital art and then by its very nature now is the NFT guy for Christie's. And it's a great, great interview, actually. We should probably link to it because he, he covers this whole reality of the NFT space in, in a very real way. But there was one part of it where he talked about the impact it's had on photography. And it really, I, you know, I love photos and cameras and all of that stuff. And it really made me quite fascinated because he kind of talked about it as reinvigorating the whole photography space. Because young people, and I count myself as a relatively young person still, they don't want stuff. They don't want to buy a physical print of a photo and put it up on a wall. And and photos are everywhere. They're like absolutely everywhere. But amazing photos that you can now own and then put on a photo frame or on your TV or whatever and and show off to your friends has opened up the whole photography space. And I've noticed more and more now, do you know 500px? Like a photo, oh, yeah. a quality sure. photo sharing site. Like there's more and more photography artists now that are completely changing their business model. They're not just like, oh, let's sell to, to Adobe stock photos or basically, you know, try and sell that one famous print that goes in the gallery for a lot of money because people want reprints. They're now going, okay, I'll issue 100 NFT versions of this famous thing and they'll be printed, but they'll also be NFTs and you can get the digital copy and it's... And it's part of their, and even doing them as videos that are part of the mixed media effects. Mm. And it's really brought a whole different avenue for quality photography, which I think is really interesting. And he was saying that they're seeing a lot more of that now enter their space of like Christie's, which really hasn't been about photos that much. Not Maybe old photos, but not really modern photographers, whereas you can do it now through NFTs. You can really bring that form of art and creativity into into space where people can actually collect and interact with it and own it. Mm-hmm. It's quite cool. Very good. Excellent. Can okay. you tell me about Bunny Squad? Yeah, it's called Pancake Squad and it's on <laughs> Binance Smart Chain. So you know how there's been like Solana stuff? Like Solana has its copies of, you know, the... Yeah, it's it just rip, rips off everything. And the punks. And even loot. Right. And Ethereum has obviously been where NFTs started. Mm-hmm. and it's really an established ecosystem. But it's kind of weird that up till now on Binance Smart Chain, there wasn't really an equivalent that I know of. There wasn't really an equivalent ecosystem. And if you think about how many people volume-wise are going through PancakeSwap, in PancakeSwap, and the same is going to be happening on ShibaSwap as well, but um, you're now beginning to see NFT ecosystems spring up in on these other chains where you didn't see them before, mm. um, and in both cases on swapping platforms. So inside PancakeSwap this week, super exciting, Pancake Squad was launched. Up till now, there have been a kind of collection of annoying avatars that you could trade internally to PancakeSwap, but now they've finally released the sort of formal 10,000 format NFT generically. You know, they've they've followed the format of NFTs where there's 10,000 of them, there's varying rarities, there's some really super rare things and they all have a kind of appeal to them. What are they? They're bunnies and have different, they're wearing different things. And it's been phenomenal how well this has gone. Now the floor price is gradually dropping uh, I can't help but notice. But the question I think that people should be asking themselves is, over time, as more and more things get added to this platform, will it either go through the Solana route of hollowing out and bankrupting itself culturally and in terms of its its morals by essentially doing more and more kind of worthless flipping Ponzi schemes on, on the platform and saturating itself massively? Or will it come to be seen as, okay, actually, they've been quite careful curating what isn't isn't allowed on the platform. From now on, they're not going to do any more mints. They're only going to do NFTs that already exist, bringing them in. Oh, interesting. Yep. And uh, they've opened that to invitations. And then I think the thing is, if there's more Pancake Squad, more generations released of the same family, uh, maybe this will turn into something, given that this was genuinely the first on the platform. Kind of has a similar status to the equivalent of, of CryptoPunks. There, there's a, that's really interesting. I think there's going to be the kind of first of a generation for every platform. So you know how, like, on Solana, they have the Degenerate Apes. And then mm. you've got Punks on Ethereum, which is like the OG 
of the whole space. Yeah, you will get like new ones on every different platform. And there's this interesting theory basically saying all of these derivative 10,000 projects are just Ponzi's. I mean, we can call it what it is. They are first in, first out Ponzi's that are just trying to get in, hype it up, drive at the price, flip it, get out. But all of that extra ETH that the ones who are winning at least are accumulating will go back to the original few things that still retain value and get put up at Christie's and all these other things that have a cultural significance outside of that little Ponzi bubble, mm. which is ultimately the punks and the and the whatever gets deemed over the next five, ten years as being the longevity form of cultural art and not just the, oh, do you remember that thing that just popped and then disappeared and then everyone's stuck with a picture in their wallet? So it's an interesting idea and I wonder whether you're right with Pancake Squad. Pancake Squad. Does Infinity, which is a kind of open sea competitor, stand any chance of pulling away liquidity from a marketplace because the valid the you know the reason why OpenSea is OpenSea is in all the places that the two-sided marketplace could congregate that's where all the liquidity is mm. and I, th- I noticed that there is a kind of supposed competitor trying to launch called Infinity are they going to get any traction there's quite a few that have come up so did you, did you see Andre Cogne who was famous for launching Yearn Finance one of the first DeFi things he's launched something called Arteon a-R-T-I-O-N on Phantom with almost zero transaction fees. And he's trying to bring a lot of the volume from other platforms Mm. and bring cross-chain functionality because that's what Phantom tries to do as well so that it isn't just copycat things. He really wants to bring it across. I tried it out the other day just to have a look and it's just all derivative crap that is there at the moment. But I think the the other one that that you just mentioned is quite interesting because... Infinity is trying to do the same thing, but like you said, it's really hard to pull people away from OpenSea. So the the way they're doing it is they're saying they'll use the exact same smart contracts that OpenSea uses. Mm. So you can list on OpenSea and at the same time list on Infinity, the same thing, even on the Ethereum blockchain. And, and so they're trying to pull liquidity across by being a genuine competitor. But the way they're attracting you is depending on how much you've used OpenSea, mm. when you do your first transaction on Infinity you'll get an airdrop of their governance tokens. Right. And it's kind of saying, oh, you've used OpenSea. Great. Mm. You should come and use this. And then you get ownership over this platform. So you should just use it more. And that's going to be a very interesting thing if that, like I'm definitely going to do it because who doesn't like free imaginary magic beans that may or may not have any intrinsic worth. Right. (laughs) And and governance over over something that you have no interest in. (laughs) Governing So we do crypto punk or crypto funk. I think it's time for crypto punk or crypto funk. Okay, you go first. Oh, thank you. So me babies. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. So me babies. It's like me bits, but it's on Sol. It's on Solana. Okay. And also they're they're more like baby me bits. Hmm. Smaller. Less. Less voxels. Right. Fewer, I believe. So um, the floor is 1.48. This is quite recent. It's 21.1 thousand sol volume traded. Okay. And that's me, babies. I have no idea. Whenever something's in sol, I'm just, I no way of judging it. Go for it. Next one. Next one. Okay, so I need you to cast your mind back to 2005. Okay. Do you remember the million dollar homepage? Describe it to me. Was it the one with um, loads of pixels? You could like yeah, buy, yeah. buy pixels. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A guy who needed to fund his way through university in the UK, so he... Sold pixels. Sold pixels on a page. Mm. And one by one. A million dollars, I think. Cool. So this new one is uh, one million NFTs. So it's a 10,000 by 10,000 grid of pixels. And the pixels themselves, which we're calling NFTs are you can trade them you so you can resell them you could lease them or you can just just buy them and then you once you've bought it you can upload an image to it or you can change what color it is and uh, you can also link a url to it and um, there's also a token behind it which is the mil token but it's like just know that the pixel itself is an NFT, which is why it counts as an NFT. Is it on what blockchain's on? Ethereum. Has it been around some time? When did it start? Um, I don't know. 
do you know how much a pixel costs? Or like, do they vary? Like, what's the base, and the floor price? You're supposed to call it an NFT. Sorry, a, a, yeah, an, F, an NFT of a pixel. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it costs it costs an amount. It's a non-zero amount. Okay, so it's yeah. not free. I mean, that's super helpful. You're not telling me anything about this. When did it start, Dene? How much does it cost? Non-zero amount. Um, can you buy it on OpenSea? Where do you buy these NFTs of pixels? Um, I think you have to buy them on the website of 1millionNFTs.com. Okay, let's go back to whatever they're called, me baby me baby thingies um me babies. do you get uh do you get like the oh, it's actually 3d you can write rotate it was just a picture of a 3d it's thing it's a picture but they might do the all the other stuff later okay i mean these you're not helping at all with these um uh, i always felt there was too much detail no there's just no detail okay let's let's think this through i think one million NFTs. I think that sounds more feasible. Well, not feasible. They both sound ridiculous. But I think there's... I'm, I'm sure I've heard of something like this, but it must have been a long time ago. So I just don't understand how that's still going. So I'm going to say that's the crypto punk. And regrettably, the me babies on Solana are the crypto funk. Jonathan Tipper. You're correct. Oh, nice. So, so um, 1 million NFTs, you you can go there. That's a real thing. Um, you can buy some NFTs there and make, you know, grab some real estate. Yeah, cool. uh, and me babies, that's not real. So that is a crypto funk. And are people doing that? Are people painting a picture of pixels on the... Yes, they are, yeah. But don't bother doing it. It's stupid. No, no, obviously. But like... Yeah. Okay, cool. Um... It is mostly mm. blank, if that helps. Oh. Well, must help someone. Um, so, NFT number one is called Savage Droids. Best way of explaining this is it's like a it's like a battle game. So, there's two droid factions. There's uh, a community team, and there's a team called Theos. And the story is slowly unfolding. They're like different groups of androids that are basically at war over generations and each of the droids has like 12 different traits um and you can have different things like different materials it's made from they can have like lidar sensors or special weapons or like special fuel and it's really cool because um although there were i forget how many like ten thousand or so at at, at creation they've got another phase of the whole story where you get fusion which is basically you can combine them so you can take two of them two droids and go put them in a fusion chamber and then you either transfer some traits from one to another so you get a shittier one and a better one or you combine them completely and actually one gets burned and the remaining droid is just a better droid has special materials that you can't get normally from the mint uh so yeah how do battles work uh battles are unclear at the moment as uh, the story is unfolding um but it's it's actually a former um netflix employee who started it um tell me about the next one uh the next one is called dying rabbits so it's on the ethereum blockchain and the best way of describing this is it's a hundred thousand rabbits but they have a declining birth rate so you breed them until there's only one thousand left and when it was, it only launched recently, but it was 0.01 ETH to mint. So relatively cheap in the whole ETH NFT space. But there's essentially a one-child policy put in place. So each generation, you take two rabbits, you breed them, those two get burnt, and you get the one child. So the population is constantly halving, and you can have a maximum four generations. And they have traits, like, you know, CryptoKitties type things where, like, dominant traits carry forward and rare ones become rarer. I know what you're thinking. 10,000, no, 100,000, four generations, that would mean 6,250 rabbits. That doesn't make sense, because I said there'd be only 1,000. Well, so, sorry, only um, 10,000. So at the point where you breed them, 
you may get twins. There's like a random chance you get twins, which is where you, your two rabbits become two, and that adds up eventually to a final cap at 10,000. So, yeah. And they have traits like fur colour, fur type, eye colour, all that stuff. Uh, they look a bit like Cryptogetes, to be honest. But only minted on Wednesday. So, floor price currently is quite low at 0.03 ETH. Can I give you more information about either of these brilliant projects? So, um, Savage Droids is real, so that's the crypto punk. And Dying Rabbits is fake, so that's the crypto funk. Maybe I should tell you more about Dying Rabbits. No, 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 it's fine. You can tell me afterwards when you've established that it's definitely not real. <sighs> okay. Um, you will be disappointed to know you're correct. Uh, and woo-hoo. Savage Toys is in fact real. In fact, the founder is actually one of the MeBitStyle members. Oh, really? Yeah, he wrote this really interesting article on Medium, which we can put in the notes, which is, why would I leave Netflix to sell JPEGs on the internet? <laughs> which is like quite a, it's mm. quite a thought-provoking decision. Mm. Which um, is, mum asked him to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a draw. That's yeah. good. No one right. leaves Well, we both won in some ways. Yeah, in, in some, some ways, ways, NFTs are the winner. <laughs> They're the only winner. Everyone is a loser in the NFT The house board. always wins. The house always wins. Great pod. And Excellent speak to you next pod. week. Thank you very much. Bye. Started during lockdown. Needed something to do. They looked at each other. They said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London